0: So next week I'll be talking about ways to emotionally process difficult life experiences. should be one of those heavy talks. So tonight I'm, uh, what am I teaching about? Oh, yes. (laughs) Simplifying life. Simplifying life. The the word in the Buddha's original uh, language that he's associated with, Pali, I'm, Nobody's sure what language he actually spoke, but the early teachings <coughs> are recorded in what's known as the Pali Canon. And uh, the word for simplifying, letting go of things that are not absolutely necessary for happiness, is Nikama, uh, of endless benefits. <coughs> It's very important in Buddhist practice whether or not we want to simplify our lives simply to begin to be able to tell the difference between what our needs or requisites for having any peace in our lives versus what are our wants and desires the things that we like the people the circumstances that we prefer that makes life more comfortable but are not absolutely necessary or requisite for happiness for peace of mind. Now the Buddha set a very I don't know if he would say low or high bar uh, for what are the bare minimums needed for peace of mind. He set for the renunciates a very uh, he said essentially each monk or a nun should have three sets of robes a bowl, uh, uh, sandals, and a kuti where they could stay safe from the uh, cold, and then that they would support themselves by going out for alms, food, and that they would never handle money. And uh, I've been an attendant for many, many months over the years of my training, and boy, let me tell you what a pain in the ass that is when there's a visiting monk and you have to walk them around everywhere and they don't have a dime and <laughs> and you're constantly having to explain to strange people in the streets exactly who this person you're with. Um, yeah, so they when they travel, they always need to have an, an agarka or a lay practitioner that goes around and essentially helps them uh, be in the world. Now, for us householders, and that's the term that, in Buddhist practice, is used for people who are not renunciates, people who uh, pay rent or a mortgage, I suppose, or uh, who have more possessions than are absolutely necessary, who have romantic relationships, The Buddha acknowledged that such people would have many more uh, needs than the uh, renunciate. And there are suttas where the Buddha talked to householders and explained to them how important it was, given the choices that they had made, to make sure that they didn't spend themselves into needless debt, um... That they took care of their obligations, that they tried to uh, find ways to uh, take care of the responsibilities that they had by choice taken on. There's nothing wrong with having things, so long as, from the spiritual perspective, the Buddha suggested that we understand that all of the things that are Preferences, the things we like having but are not absolute necessities, should be viewed in terms of what's known as the marks of existence, which is that most things in our lives are... Um, they give fleeting pleasure, not lasting pleasure. And they are not going to answer our core emotional needs. That, uh, in other words the joy most things bring will be impermanent. Now, there's two ways we can look at what this impermanent idea means. On the first hand, there's a famous teaching by the great monk Ajahn Chah who had a, who would lead lots of retreats and everybody went on his retreats, nobody had their own cup. They all had to use, nobody could put their name on a cup. They all had to use the cups interchangeably And the only person who had their own cup was Ajahn Chah. He had his own cup, his own Ajahn Chah cup, that nobody got to use. Nobody could touch or use the Ajahn Chah cup. And one of those, the story goes that one Westerner, because we are, uh, always bear the burdens of the impolite questioners in these stories. Uh, One Westerner said to Chah, why do you get your own cup? (laughs) <laughs> and Charles said, I, I love telling the story, Cha said, well, I know that my cup is going to break. And I have a relationship with it knowing that it will break. I know, every time I see it, that one day I will open up the cabinet and it will be broken to pieces. And none of you know that <laughs> but what he meant is that while we all intellectually may know that things can break and go away but emotionally we all relate to our things as if they will you know that uh, there won't be any disappointment associated with it whereas Chaw is saying at a deep emotional core level he appreciated everything as a permanent therefore he didn't develop a a illusory relationship with his objects. He appreciated them because of their impermanence. Now, that's one way to look at it, that things have a tendency to break or, or be taken. But from another more, uh, uh, I think, resonant perspective, um, impermanence is a result of how quickly we habituate to things. When I see the new I-thing in the window of an Apple store, it has a kind of a glow, a kind of a, this is the thing I have been waiting for. It's so sleek and thin, and it's it's beautifully designed. It has a, a glow that my craving bestows to it. And then, so, I save and save and scrimp, and then I have my eye thing, and you get it, and for the first few days, it feels so... This is the thing that's going to make the difference. This is going to make me. This is going to answer those, those, this feeling of emptiness, this, those wounds, that feeling of, of what's the role of my life. This will answer existence. And then, over a course of days, it just becomes something I pick up, or like, yeah. the glow goes away. It no longer answers, it no longer fills any emotional holes, it no longer uh, feels uh, like the thing. So we habituate. And that's one way we turn things into, uh, uh, we can continue the craving pattern. Then we look for something else that has the glow to replace the faded glow. Another way we can turn things into craving is things we take for granted as givens. It's humorous for me, a guy in my 50s, you know, I I became a teen in the late 70s, and so I didn't know what the internet was until I was in my middle 30s. And the first time I saw a cell, what they called a mobile phone, and then a cellular phone, It was in a a TV show, and a detective said, Oh, there was a phone ringing in his car. I was like, What's going on? And he picked up a phone this size, and he was talking into it, and it looked like a watermelon he was holding up to his head. I was like, That's cool. I got to get one of those. And they cost $1,000. They're made by Dynatech. (laughs)
1: Uh,
0: But now, uh, uh, if if my internet goes out, (laughs) it's like somebody took away the running water. So the electricity has gone out. What's going on? This is outrageous. What the hell? And so that immediately as well, when we conflate what is essentially a preference to a need? Then, the moment there's any glitch, any uh, any setback, any any frustrating encounter, then it causes suffering and craving. And then, um, on top of it, everything that we conflate to be a need that we we absolutely must have divides our attention requires more and more and more attention. If, when I was in, on retreat in the middle of the jungle of Thailand living in a kuti, I didn't have any electricity. I, The water was brought from a well. There was no internet, of course. There was two meals a day. There was no thing to read and I was un- just so happy and when on the other hand the mind here gets filled up with the story that I need an easy commute and this such and such internet connection such and such uh, uh, access to the beach I have gotta go to the beach it's a beautiful day what am I doing here All every time I turn something into a need then it becomes something that distracts me from where true lasting peace can be found because all the things that i mistake as needs cannot provide lasting peace and happiness the internet has yet to be able to do that for any human being <laughs> so there's a great story of i believe ayakema the nun who was asked by who was celebrated by uh, all these supporters and they They told her how grateful they were for all her teaching and all the different uh, Buddhist monasteries she set up for nuns. And they said, you know, you've made such a sacrifice taking on the vow of poverty and not having a place to live and roaming from place to place without uh, all these obligations and things, the wonderful things that we have. And she shot back, well, it's actually you that's made the sacrifice. Every time you take on a responsibility, an obligation, something that you have to pay for and look after, every time you take on a job or a this or that or a family member or a relationship that is um, committed, you are taking on stuff that is potentially going to pull your awareness away from sources of true peace. I'll explain a little bit about the fact that um, the difference between romantic relationships and the kind of attachments that the Buddha recommended. uh, There's nothing wrong with romantic relationships. In fact, the Buddha anticipated it and said there's nothing wrong with it. But uh, very often we undervalue the role that true, wise friends can play in finding peace of mind. I will say that in my work, I found that there's very little difference in people who needlessly accumulate and and become addicted to shopping to people who overschedule themselves to the point where they leave no free time, to the people who are workaholic, to the people who eventually have dysphoric relationships even with food, because all of these strategies are essentially... One, they're associated with dopamine rushes in the brain. Two, by over-scheduling, taking on obligations, filling up our lives, becoming addicted to consuming or purchasing or acquiring, what we're essentially doing is distracting and repressing early traumatic wounds that we haven't healed yet. In my experience, people do not fill up their lives constantly with busyness, constantly overschedule themselves, or constantly seek the dopamine high of shopping by um, unless there's something that has been exiled from awareness that they do not want to feel. A core abandonment, a core early experience in life where uh, a, a downturn in a family's financial security or a sudden feeling of vulnerability. And nobody likes those core feelings of everything is vulnerable, nothing is secure. At any moment, I could be deprived of safety. And so the tendency to schedule, fill up life, surround ourselves with the process of acquiring and accumulating is an attempt to create a feeling of abundance. But that feeling of abundance isn't real. There's other ways to create a feeling of abundance through reflecting on relationships that are secure but not by acquiring or filling up our lives with responsibilities or things. Um, There's a lot of studies by the University of South Wales, and they found that one with people who hoard, and then they did another study with people who were chronically overscheduled, they found the same thing, which was invariably there was a core early trauma that had not been... Attended to feelings of deprivation, sudden feelings of deficit, vulnerability. They also found that such people, because of these traumas, began to devalue the role that other people could play in healing those wounds and instead tried to find healing through acquiring, accumulating, or staying busy. It's only through simplifying our life, by letting go of all the obligations and chores and the things we signed up for and beginning to open up space to attend to those exiled feelings, the wounded child we all have in us that has yet to be held and nurtured, that we can begin to address what is lying beneath this rush this need to stay busy or to uh, go shopping at the end of a stressful day or to fill up our time. Uh, When it comes to helping ourselves downsize or simplify life, then it's a mistake to try to do it from a logical perspective. My dad, who was an alcoholic later on in life, turned into a bit of a hoarder with just a whole bunch of, like every electronic thing he ever bought in his life, he never threw out. There was this, he had the story that everything could be salvaged, uh, stuff that hadn't worked for 20 years, clothes that he would never have fit in 20 years earlier, uh, just, and For a while, I fell into the the tragic mistake of trying to logic and reason with him. But the relationship we have with things uh, and the things that we fill up our life with is not logical. It's emotional. It's an attempt to fill up the holes where old feelings of vulnerability could come through. So... In order to eventually help my dad so that we could move him into the assisted living facility, I eventually realized that what he needed was not judgment or logic or reasoning or even applying what I consider to be a rational, you won't ever use this, why do we have to keep it? It was rather to sit with him and ask him each time I wanted to remove something, how do you feel about this? What needs to be felt? What comes up when we're simplifying when we're downsizing what comes up. And when I do it in my own life, when I quit my job to, to, to do this fakakta plan of being a Buddhist teacher, uh, I had to ask myself constantly as I was letting go of things, you know, okay, what's coming up? What needs to be felt? Where's the vulnerability? Where's the feeling of being susceptible? Where's the feeling of not having something to... Cling on to. It was an, it's an emotional process, not a logical, intellectual one. And so, when we want to downsize in life, what we're facing is not the need to look at each object and rationalize its use. What we need to do is to be with the feelings of vulnerability and deprivation that come up and empathize and create a safe container. So um, that's about the objects, but then there's also the relationships we have with people. Uh, It's very important in our relationships with people to know what our needs are versus what our wants are, just as it's important to know what we need, what things we need versus what things and what circumstances are simply preferences. The needs in relationships are just as subjective as the things we need in life. I'll give you an example of a thing I needed that was very subjective. When I was working as an art director, um, I constantly, for a while, when I'd get these new uh, gigs, I would ask for the newest, latest Macintosh. I have a thing for that. and. Um, Maybe it's because the only way I'd ever get access to them was by asking for them. But that wasn't really a need. But I really quickly realized that if I was given an uncomfortable chair to work in, I'd get tremendous back pains. Because when you're direct, art directing things, you're in the same position for hours. And if I was in the wrong chair, I'd wind up with these horrendous back pains. So what it turned out my real need was was to have a comfortable chair, not to have the latest computer. Hmm. And that only came about by reflecting on real lived experience, not by asking what I want, but by seeing what is really causing suffering in my life. Sometimes our real needs are very different from what we think they should be, but we have to honor them. For instance, some people who come from anxious attachment styles with parents who are abandoning, their needs in relationships are, at first, to have more connection. Some people who grew up with enmeshing, smothering parents, on the other hand, might wind up avoidant, and their needs are to have greater distance. And it's important to be able to express our needs and then be able to slowly work on them, but to pretend that we don't have needs sets us up for a lot of trouble. It's far worse for somebody to pretend that they don't have needs than to... state them and be disappointed. Now, what happens when we state our needs? For instance, we need a safe place where people pay, uh, where someone, we're in a romantic relationship, pays attention to us, uh, takes our views into consideration, connects with us uh, with a certain regularity. What happens if we don't get our needs met? Now, in my experience working with people, it's always essential to learn how to set boundaries based on our needs. Boundaries are based on needs, not based on wants. When I set a boundary, though, there are many ways to do that, and most people go to the most unskillful way to set okay. a boundary, which is, I'll give you an example of an actual case I worked with. It happened many years ago, but I still like quoting it. Was working with um, somebody, uh, and they had gotten out of the blue fired from downsized from their job, and they called up one friend after another who said, "You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Everything's going to be okay." And then they finally, I think they were trying to go for the disappointing experience. They called up their father, who had never in his entire life ever managed to emotionally regulate in an upbeat, soothing way. And yet they called up their father, told their father, still expecting that this would be the time that the dad would say, don't worry, this will be, you will be okay, everything's going to be all right. And of course the father did the exact opposite. He freaked out. What are you going to do? you can't move back here. (laughs) And then he shouted to the mother, she lost her job! (laughs) So, uh, in essence, um... She was, there was an unconscious agenda to reproduce the core family lack of caretaking and lack of regulation. But in another way, what she had failed to do was to establish boundaries in her relationship with her father. Now, most people, when they go through disappointing familial experiences, they go for what's known as the cutoff, which is where we immediately cut off somebody. We stop talking. Uh, we get them out of our lives. Or, B, we do the equally unskillful things, we demand over and over and over and over again that they say exactly what we want them to say, even though they're clearly incapable of it. Both strategies do not work. (laughs) Cut-off freezes conflict without any possibility of working through. On the other hand, demanding that somebody's incapable of providing support or care suddenly be able to do it generally fails as well. What we can do, however, is build off limits in our lives where we assign specific topics as I'm not going to talk with my family about this because they're not safe in this area. That doesn't mean we have to cut them off entirely. We can still have relationships with them where all sorts of information and care is given, but we just begin to see in our lived experience where our needs are not being made, and we act accordingly. I was in Buddhist family therapy for an insanely long period of time, and the first thing that the Buddhist chaplain who was working with my family taught us all was... The boundary maker which is this he said whenever you don't want to talk about something just do this and say i'm not going to talk about that and i used that talk to the hand symbol <laughs> with my family especially my father more times than you could possibly imagine in those seven years just no no and it's because i could set and my sister and my father could eventually set boundaries where we made topics off limits that we actually had a very close relationship as my father entered the last years of his life, if I had allowed him to constantly either disappoint me or to be constantly try to control what he would how he should respond, all it would have done is create constant conflict sometimes in life we can never get the responses we want. The, cut off, the uh, setting off limits means they might never change. I worked with somebody who grew up with very homophobic parents who were not capable of ever accepting their sexuality, and so the off limits had to remain for a long time. And it was unfortunate. It's pretty much the family's responsibility to acknowledge and support a child but this family could never be safe in that area. So there are other cases, though, where they're not needs, where they're just preferences, where people do little things that irritate us, and we can conflate that into, they're driving me crazy! They're driving me crazy! I'll give you an example. I worked with a person, I won't give away his name, his initials were JS, and... uh, (laughs) He, uh so I worked in this at this time I worked in this ad agency I was miserable it was like I felt like oh I've wound up in advertising I'm a complete and utter sham fraud failure <laughs> disgrace my mother who worked in advertising said please do anything but work in advertising <laughs> so um I wound up at a job at an advertising agency and I I shared an office with a guy who's just so damned thrilled that he worked in advertising. he came in humming each day with a big grin on his face. And he thought that every damn message that he got was so important that he had a different sound on his iPhone for every text, every message, every, you know, every ping, every call would play songs like Don't Worry, Be Happy. And... He would lock his phone into the drawer, so that, so that I couldn't even get to the phone, because once he left it out, and I, I I'm not even tell you what I put on this phone, but anyway, it was actually pretty funny. Uh, I actually put um, uh, on one of his phone a messages from the, the head of the company saying that he had been made vice president. I <laughs> believed it. He started calling around. <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, I haven't always been a nice guy. So. But I realized that I was, I was turning his, his, what he was doing, his habits, into as if he, his habits as if he were doing them to me. In fact, when I realized that if I wasn't there at all, he'd still be doing exactly the same. So it had nothing to do with me. He just liked working in that business, and he liked having his phone sounds, and every day he was just <laughs> falling into this habit of not turning them off. So I started... I tried a different strategy, realizing that every time I was demanding that he change, it wasn't working. I started complimenting him on the days his damn phone wouldn't ring or make a sound. And even though I knew that he hadn't remembered to turn off it off, I would compliment him. I started creating this association of reward for his phone not making a sound. And sure enough, by letting go of the belief that this was a need, And instead, viewing it as simply a preference on my part, I was able to creatively address a situation, and it worked. He started turning off his phone, because the demand made him intractable and created a natural resistance. But when I started approaching it from an entirely different reward process, he actually stopped leaving it on. When I view interpersonal wants as needs, when somebody doesn't live up to what I believe is a need, I will countlessly draw, make demands, ultimatums. I will constantly come at people with uh, probably an, a degree of energy that suggests that they are failing or that they're doing something to me that is inexcusable. When I constantly remember, on the other hand, and can discern what are simply preferences, then I can develop strategies. I can not only try to be rewarding, I can also try to learn to be tolerant. I can let go of the story I'm adding, that they're doing something to me. I can actually begin to focus my awareness on all the things in the relationship that are going well. But the more I conflate something into a need, the more likely I'm going to feel under attack. It's important in life to find the balance between what are authentic needs and no need is, uh, all needs are subjective. There is no right or wrong needs. We come across what our needs are by reflecting on what are the conditions that are absolutely necessary for our happiness. And with our needs, it's our responsibility to state them clearly and then to live in accordance with them, which means I have to protect my needs and I have to take action, setting off limits, modifying relationships if my needs aren't being met. If my preferences aren't being met, though, my responsibility is to be creative to see how I can change my relationship with the suffering and the stress, to look at it from a different way, and to investigate, really, how much do I need to change and where can I bring acceptance into this relationship. If I set too few needs, I'll just recreate the struggles of childhood, the, un- the situations in childhood where we don't get any rights where parents are capricious and make arbitrary rules and will, will never uh, uh, develop the ability to say, no, this is inappropriate. So it's healthy to have needs. On the other hand, to have too many needs, to express too many, is to make all relationships impossible. Because if we constantly appra- approach every Uh, small conflict or disappointment as if a need has been violated, then eventually we will find it very difficult to find any satisfactory partners. So after each relationship, it's important to investigate did I state my needs clearly? Did I set skillful boundaries? And where did I pretend that I didn't have a need where I had one? And where did I act as if I had a need when in fact it was simply a preference? I hope that makes some sense. I thank you for listening. And now at this time, we go to time for people to ask questions. If you do leave at this time, uh, for those who need to go, if you can contribute so we can pay the rent, uh, that's how we keep using this space. So thank you for listening.